Please be aware that True Crime by the Book may discuss topics, share opinions, and use language that could be disturbing or offensive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Tidings and salutations, bibliophages. Thank you for joining me on True Crime by the Book, where every other Tuesday we meet up to talk real crime one page at a time. I'm your host, Tasha Pierce, and today we will be concluding our discussion of the book Charmer, the true story of a ladies' man and his victims by Jack Olson. Last week, we learned that George Walterfield Russell Jr. grew up on Mercer Island, He was a troublemaker all his life, and his petty crimes were little more than a nuisance. Over the years, George's crimes had begun escalating, his burglaries taking on a perverse and voyeuristic tone. He began to study the movements of the Green River Killer with a little too much intensity. He spoke of Ted Bundy with a sort of reverence. He read a book by a woman about Bundy, and he raged about how she knew nothing about Bundy. How dare she judge his hero? He pondered out loud about why there weren't any black serial killers, which of course was not true. When we left off, he had ramped up to physically abusing Mindy, his girlfriend of five months. Today we will find out how much further George ultimately goes. Now, in time, Mindy got sick of George's abuse. He assaulted her and ransacked her apartment. She reported it, and he was arrested February 12, 1990, and was soon out of Mindy's life for good. He still had the Black Angus, though, but there was a waitress, GB, that dared to spot his bullshit, and she was very vocal about it. George began to harass and attempt to intimidate her, She wanted him to be banned from entering the night spot, but the owner was reluctant because of George's popularity with the regulars. After talking with a female friend, who also was a Mercer Island cop, GB learned that George had a warrant out for his arrest on a parole violation. The next time he showed up at the Angus, she tipped the police. They dispatched a female black officer who made the arrest. Now, we already discussed how George felt about black women. This was the tipping point for George. He had been humiliated by a woman for the last time. Now, after threatening the life of GB, George was 86 from the Angus. The ban was initially for two weeks, but after an employee meeting, the ban became permanent. George knew exactly who who most wanted him to be barred from the Angus. That knowledge further fueled his extreme misogyny. Marianne Polreich was 27 years old. She moved to Bellevue to study computers and was working as a telemarketer. She shared an apartment with a friend. Marianne had a strict Christian upbringing and she was kind of relishing her newfound freedom. She began frequenting a a night spot, not the Black Angus, but a place called Papagayo's. There she would sip drinks with friends, chat with other partiers, and dance the night away. 
On Friday, June 23, 1990, she got dressed and hit the club with a couple of her girlfriends. Liquor flowed, music played, and dancing ensued. In fact, Marianne had personally requested MC Hammer's song, You Can't Touch This, at least five times. And if you were around in the 90s, you know what that song did to a party, right? (laughs) So she was having a lot of fun, and I'm pretty sure that more than a few of you can relate to the club scene in the 90s. There came a point that her friends were ready to go home. That was about 9.30 that night, but Marianne was not ready to call it a night. She still had a Long Island iced tea in front of her, and she wanted to finish her drink. So they left without her. That would be the last time they saw Marianne Polreich alive. Now there's a little speculation involved in determining the timeline from that point. Um, According to a toxicology report, she was highly intoxicated. It's thought that she was offered a ride home and was attacked in the vehicle she was riding in. Her cause of death was manual strangulation. There was blunt force trauma to the head by a heavy object, and she had sustained other injuries from being savagely beaten. She had also been raped after death. Her body was then disposed of near a dumpster behind a black Angus. She was posed nude with her legs crossed, arms folded. There was a pine cone placed in her hand and a plastic lid covering one eye. A bartender who left work at the Angus reported there was definitely nothing near the dumpster at 3.30 a.m. That would mean that the perpetrator put Marianne's body out there around 4 a.m. or later. Now, Bellevue had a very low crime rate, so this murder was bizarre for a number of reasons. This was a particularly heinous crime, and the staging of the body just added an extra layer of depravity. Where there is staging, there is often a message. But what was the message, and who was the intended recipient? The police began their investigation by retracing Marianne's steps from 9.30 p.m. when her friends left the club until 4 a.m. They spoke to patrons, bartenders, and bouncers at Papagayo's, many of whom stated that they were not sure if they had seen her or if she had left with anyone. Those who had remembered seeing her weren't sure when she left. One person wanted to know what happened to her and if the police had any leads. The police had hoped to get some ideas from the last place they knew Marianne was seen alive. They had zero leads to share with the public. Now, as the Marianne Polwright case continued to unfold, the unthinkable happened. There was another woman murdered. On August 9th, police were called to the home of Carol Beef. Carol was 34 years old and the mother of two daughters. She was a divorcee but had a boyfriend. Carol was a bartender at the Kushina Kushina restaurant. Carol got home shortly after 2.15 a.m. After her shift, she had spent an hour or two chatting with her boyfriend, then another hour with a friend talking about her upcoming vacation plans. At 4.30 a.m., her daughter heard movement in the house and saw the light from a flashlight. She assumed it was her mother's boyfriend, Mike, 
and went back to sleep. At 8.30, the girls got up and noticed their mother wasn't awake. One daughter went to her mom's door and knocked to no response. She tried to open the door, but it was locked. She then went outside and around to the sliding door, which was open. Upon entering the bedroom, she was confronted with a horrific sight. Now this description is extremely graphic, but I thought it important to detail the scene that this poor child walked in on. Carol was lying on her bed with her legs spread. She was nude except for a pair of red heels. There was a rifle with the barrel inserted in her vagina, the stock between her legs. Her left arm was bent up towards her head, her right arm bent down towards her hip. There were a pillow and a plastic bag over her face. The perpetrator had smeared blood down both of her legs. She was beaten with some type of weapon about her head and face. The weapon was not found. The assailant kneed and punched Carol so violently that her ribs were broken and her liver was lacerated. She had no defensive wounds, which means she was blitz attacked while she slept. This is the condition. The monster who had killed her left her for her children to find. Now her terrified daughter raced from the room and called her father. Her father came over and looked at the scene, then called the police. When the police arrived and saw the level of violence coupled with the staging, there was a sense of dread. What were the chances that the murders of these two women weren't related? A town that has so few murders that it doesn't even have a homicide division suddenly has two bodies and zero leads. Well, since it appeared that there was a repeat offender on the loose, the police began looking at what the victims had in common. There really didn't seem to be any similarities besides them both being white and, and pretty. One was killed in her home and the other was apparently killed somewhere else and dumped at a popular hangout. The police began to interview friends, family, and acquaintances in order to spot a pattern or a suspect. Incredibly, before they got very far with the Beef case, there was yet another murder of a pretty young white woman. Andrea Levine was 24 years old and lived alone in a basement apartment. On August 30th, she got home from meeting her boyfriend at about 1.30 a.m. She apparently did some packing for a trip she and her boyfriend had planned, then prepared for bed. At approximately 5 a.m., her landlord, who lived upstairs, got up to let his dog out. The dog went ballistic as soon as it got to the door, and that was when the landlord spotted a figure lurking outside the home. The figure appeared to be that of a man, and when he saw the man of the house, he took off running. The landlord initially gave chase, but then went home to phone police. 
the police came and performed a search of the property, but didn't check on Andrea's apartment. Now, the following Monday, the landlady noticed an odor coming from Andrea's apartment. She entered the apartment and was shocked by what she saw. Andrea was on the bed with her legs spread. She had a sex toy inserted in her mouth and the book, More Joy of Sex, tucked under her left arm. Her right arm was extended above her shoulder. She had sustained a ferocious attack, being cut or stabbed 263 times. She was also beaten about the head with a metal bar. Now, we've got three murders, three different victims, no, nothing tying these three victims together, except how they were posed at the end of their murder. What makes a killer pose a victim? Psychology Today states that FBI profilers may encounter deliberate alterations of the crime scene or the victim's body position at the scene of the murder. If these alterations are made for the purpose of confusing or otherwise misleading criminal investigators, then they are called staging, and they are considered to be part of the killer's MO. On the other hand, if the crime scene alterations only serve the fantasy needs of the offender, then they are considered part of the signature, and they are referred to as posing. Sometimes a victim's body is posed to send a message to the police or the public. For example, Jack the Ripper sometimes posed his victims' nude bodies with their legs spread apart to shock onlookers and the police in Victorian England. In the crimes we're discussing, the posing seems to be part of the killer's fantasy. He isn't attempting to point the finger in another direction, he is achieving a perverse thrill and is attempting to shock the unfortunate soul who stumbles upon his work and to punish or degrade the victim. The posing, the frenzied attack, the type of victim. There was little doubt that there was a serial killer on the loose and he was escalating. Bellevue police knew they were out of their league on this one, so they called Seattle police for an assist. What did these victims have in common? After much investigation and investigating the lives of these three victims, it became apparent that the only similarity outside of their race was they all frequented Bellevue's night spots. Marianne was last seen at a night spot. Carol worked as a bartender and sometimes met friends at the Black Angus. And Andrea was known to hang out from time to time herself. In two of the crimes, a home invasion was a key component. From that, police gathered that the perp was a skilled cat burglar. There were small items of jewelry taken in both home invasions, and Carol was known to keep Crown Royal bags with silver dollars and other change. And I don't know if everybody is acquainted 
with what a Crown Royal bag is. Crown Royal is a type of whiskey and it has, it comes in like a purple bag with gold writing on it. And the bag has a little drawstring. And a lot of people, myself included, have finished a bottle of Crown Royal and then used that bag to store other things in. And in this case, in this case, Carol used that, that bag to hold change. Well, those bags of change were missing as well. Now, a sexualized crime expert offered a profile of the killer that included him being a white male. But when local cops heard of the break-ins and petty thefts, they had one suspect in mind. On January 10th, 1991, George Walterfield Russell Jr. was arrested on outstanding warrants. When he was interviewed by police, he was asked about the homicides. During those interviews, he divulged that he was acquainted with all three victims. Three victims who seemingly had nothing in common suddenly were linked to one individual. This was not a coincidence. It also wasn't a coincidence that the day Marianne Polreich was killed, George had quote, unquote, borrowed a friend's truck to make a quick run. When he kept the truck until after five the next morning, the friend was pretty pissed off. And not only that, but it reeked inside of the truck. George told him that he had thrown up to explain the smell, but the friend just went and got his truck detailed after George brought it back. There was also no coincidence that George had been to Andrea Levine's home previously with her boyfriend. Then he came back to her house alone, asking her for a ride. She told her boyfriend to tell George never to come to her place again. And the boyfriend thought, oh, he's just innocent. It, he Once he meets somebody, he feels like they're friends. But that gave him a little insight into Andrea Levine. Uh, it was absolutely not a coincidence that Carol Beeth and GB, the waitress who got George banned from the Black Angus, were good friends. He thought the two ladies were gossiping about him after his first verbal altercation with GB. And if somehow you still aren't convinced of George's involvement, here are some more non-coincidences. The truck that George borrowed was searched and Marianne's blood was found under the floor mats. George began cutting out articles about the murders, saying the killer would never be caught and referring to the victims as whores and skanks. George sold one of his friends a ring that belonged to Andrea Levine. George took another friend into a wooded area to collect some money that was owed to him in the woods. But when he returned, he had crown royal bags filled with change. I hate this word, but I'm going to use it because that's the word that they use. Negroid, Negroid hairs were found at the crime scenes. And this was pre-DNA, but the hairs were consistent with George. I much, much prefer hair that is consistent with a black or African-American person, but they use Negroid. Anyway, 
George also was a very skilled foyer and burglar. He had been doing this since he was a child on Mercer Island. And then, remember the bar patron that asked if there were any leads in the investigation? That patron was George. <laughs> this evidence is more than circumstantial. It's damning. Now, I'm going to recommend that you read the book for details of the trial of George Waterfield Russell. Just know that this piece of trash is off the streets for good. On October 22nd, 1991, he was sentenced to forever. Forever, ever? Forever, ever? I'm sure that he would have been sentenced to death if that were an option at the time of his murders. Now, George broke the mold in a few ways. He crossed the racial divide as a serial killer, which is unusual until you take into account that George acted white. That's a quote unquote acted white. That's not my thinking. George did not want anything to do with African-Americans, his black heritage. He grew up and is comfortable amongst the, uh, the white population to the point where he despised the black population. George's crimes were sexual and sadistic even before his first murder. I believe that he had a gratification in breaking into people's homes. He took things from the scene of the murders, but I don't think they were trophies. It was just like 12-year-old George breaking into a home and eating toast. He was hungry, so he took food. In the case of 31-year-old George, he needed money, so he stole their stuff. He wanted to be special. He thought black serial killers were unicorns. Truth is, black serial killers usually kill black people. Since he didn't live around black people, he wouldn't know that. Now, I believe George would have continued to murder had he not been caught. This would not have been a Gold State killer or BT, BTK kind of maniac where they age caught up with them and they stopped on their own. I think George would have had to been caught before he stopped. He would have killed and killed and killed some more. I do recommend that you read the book. And I also watched the investigation discovery show Most Evil. They had an episode about uh, Russell, P Russell. And I also looked up certain facts on Murderpedia. So thanks for Murderpedia and its extensive information on the crimes of not just George Waterfield Russell, but a lot of serial killers. Now that's it for Jack Olson's Charmer. Now I had a book chosen for next week's episode, but I had to return it because I just couldn't get into it. The audio was really shitty and so was the story. I have a backup plan though, so I'll be working hard to get that out next Tuesday. If you have feedback, comments, or book suggestions, I'll direct you to my email, tcbytb at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at tcbytb. Please subscribe to True Crime by the Book on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcast, and many other podcatchers. And please share the show with a friend. I'd also appreciate ratings and reviews on your platform of choice. 
I'd like to thank you once again for listening, and I'll catch you later, bookworms.